Welcome to God is Open. I'm your host, Christopher Fisher. On today's episode, we are going to be covering the strange case of Balaam. Now, Balaam was a false prophet. He is portrayed as a villain throughout the Bible, but he's commandeered by God for God's purposes. We find ourselves in Numbers 22. This is Israel, and they're on the way back to the Promised Land after being rejected. This is uh, before they camp opposite of Canaan and uh, before Moses dies and before in Joshua they enter the promised land. So they're traveling through Moab and the Moabite king wants to hire someone, a prophet, to curse Israel. And Balak the son of Zippor saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites and Moab was in great dread of the people because they were many. Moab was overcome with fear of the people of Israel. This is a evading, hostile group of people who are going through killing all sorts of different people groups. A very dangerous situation to have on your hand. And Moab said to the elders of Midian, This horde will now lick up all that is around us as the ox licks up the grass of the field. So Balak, the son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at the time, sent messages to Balaam, the son of Bor at Perthur which is near the river in the land of the people of Ahmad, to call him, saying, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt, they cover the face of the earth, and they are dwelling opposite of me. So uh, a lot of repeated uh, themes going on here, so they probably could have condensed that a little bit in writing. Come now, curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them from the land, for I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. So Balaam has a reputation for having accuracy in his curses and blessings, that there's some sort of effectual power between him and maybe the divine realm, something's going on there, where if he curses someone, that person will be losing. It could be a front, but the story doesn't actually portray it as a front. There seems to be some sort of efficacy in the things that Balaam does. And this seems to be one of the reasons why God commandeers him and forces him to give blessings for Israel because Balaam's, his curses and blessings would come true, would have some effect on the material world. Numbers 22, 7, so the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the fees for the divination in their hand and they came to Balaam and gave him Balak's message. And he said to him, Lodge here tonight, and I will bring back word to you as the Lord, this is Yahweh, Lord is all caps, it's Yahweh, speaks to me. So pause right here. So we have a priest uh, who's not encountered Israel. Uh, he's not uh, been involved with them. He's not interacted with them. But he is speaking directly to Yahweh. Yahweh, just, just keep that in mind. Um, this is someone who has not been interacting with Israel in any sense of the word, but seems to have, not only does he know God's name, remember even even uh, the Israelites do not know God's name in Exodus, they relearn his name or they learn his name, but here is a pagan priest who knows the name of Yahweh, consults Yahweh, and Yahweh responds, which tells us that even outside of Israel, there were Yahweh worshipers. There was Yahweh knowledge. 
the name of Yahweh, although it might not been, have been known to the people of Israel, it was known to pagan peoples. Yahweh was known among the pagan nations. So this is really important, considering the development of the worship of Yahweh. That means Yahweh's name did not arise in Exodus 3.14. This is not him coining a new name for himself. This name is known to outside peoples, just not Israel. Israel had worshipped Yahweh as El Shaddai, but in Exodus 3, that is when Israel is being introduced to God's name. But the foreign peoples know this. And I got this article pulled up, The Origin of Yahweh Worship in Israel. And he makes this case that, you know, there's evidence that Yahweh's name was known outside of Israel. I'm just going to scroll down through a couple of his references. He says, number two, there is considerable evidence that Yahweh was known to other ancient peoples besides Israel. Adelichix and the other Assyriologists believe that the name occurs in documents in the first dynasty of Babylon 2300 through 2200 BC. This claim is disputed, so it's better not to press the argument. Other evidence is clearer. A son of the king of Hamath in the time of David bore the name of Yoram. Joram. This is certainly a compound with Yahweh. A lot of times these kings, their, their names would be associated with Yahweh's name. Or, you, you know, you'd name your, your king as a compound of a God's name. Even my name, Christopher. Uh, it's a Christ bearer, right? It's linking to a religion. And that's what these kings' names are. So a lot of these names are components, have components of Yahweh, pagan kings. I think I covered this in a previous podcast. 300 years later, a king of Hamath mentioned in the annals of Sargon, king of Assyria, bore the name of Yah-Ubi-D, which is paraphrased elsewhere as Ili-Ubi-D. This is also unquestionably a Yahweh compound. In 739 BC, Tilath III fought against a certain Azeru, king of Yadoi, whose capital was Kalani in northern Syria. This name is a Yahweh compound of a familiar Hebrew type. I'm going to scroll down and we'll, we'll talk about his next points. The form Yahweh is not Hebrew. It is unintelligible to Hebrew ears. The interpretation he will be is artificial since in Hebrew this word is Yeheth. The fact that all the documents find it necessary to explain it suggests that it is not of Hebrew origin, but was borrowed from some other language and subsequently fitted with Hebrew etymology. So what this is telling us is that Yahweh is not a Hebrew construction. This is not a name invented in Hebrew for Hebrews. This is a name that was well known in the Semitic world before adoption by the Israelites in Egypt uh, through Moses. Moses uh, brought the name of Yahweh to the people of Egypt, that Israel in Egypt. But other people groups knew and communed. Communed. We see communion going on here with Balaam. Uh, Balaam communes with Yahweh, God. He talks to God. God talks back. There, there's, there's communication going on. It's not, it's not clear if. Balaam, Balaam might have commune with other divinities, other divine beings. He might consider Yahweh as one among multiple possible people to interact with. But because Balaam, uh, he, he might be a priest to Yahweh, we, it could be the case. But he is portrayed negatively throughout the Bible. He's eventually killed 
in the Bible by Israel. Surprisingly, it says this, And God came to Balaam and said, Who are these men with you? And Balaam said to God, Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent me, saying, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt and covered the face of the earth. Now come, curse them for me. Perhaps I shall be able to fight against them and drive them out. So what's going on here? God is asking him for information. Is it a known answer question? Is it God genuinely inquiring for information? Uh, take your pick. Either could be the case. But, you know, uh, there, there's conversation, which is the more interesting, interesting thing going on here. Yahweh is speaking to Balaam, and it's not being portrayed like this is a chance freak occurrence. It seems to be like Balaam has regular communication with God, per the text. So Yahweh has refused, uh, refused uh, helping Balak, and uh, then what happened? So the princes of Moab rose and went to Balak and said, Balaam refuses to come with us. So Balak's the pagan king. Balaam's refusing on Yahweh's advice. So once again, Balak sent princes more in number and more honorable than these, and they came to Balaam and said to him, Thus says Balak, the son of Zippor, let nothing hinder you from coming to me, for I will surely do to you great honor, and whatever you say to me, I will do. Come and curse this people for me. He's, he's really convinced that Balaam's curses are going to have effectual power. But Balaam answered and said to the servants of Balak, Though Balak were given to me his house full of silver and gold, I cannot go beyond the commandment of the Lord my God to do less or more. So here's he's being portrayed as perhaps a worshiper of Yahweh. So you too, please stay here tonight that I may know what more the Lord will say to me. So he's going to consult Yahweh again. And God answers him again. And God came to Balaam at night and said, If these men have come to call you, rise, go with them, but only do what I tell you to do. So Balaam rose in the morning and saddled his donkey and went with the princes of Moab. We get some sort of reversal that goes on in verse 22. This is the famous scene in which God confronts Balaam. And it's it's not entirely clear why this is happening because God said, if the men have come to call you, rise and go with them, but do only what I tell you to do. Uh, then some commentators think maybe he just did it on his own initiative. He's not exactly following directions in Numbers 22.20 that uh, he takes his own initiative to go with the men without being called and so, therefore, in Numbers 22, 22, God gets mad at him and opposes him in his pursuits, which that, that should tell us something very interesting, if that is the case, if that's what's happening here, that Balaam's not a puppet, puppet being metaphysically strung along, being forced to do everything God commands him to do. He has free will and volition, and he could anger God. He, he stirs God's anger. God is mad about this. I don't think Balaam is an ineffectual prophet. I think he, he has some sort of power, and God really doesn't want him to curse Israel because that would set up some sort of link to the divine world that would have effectual results on the people of Israel. So God gets angry. You don't get angry if someone doesn't have the power to accomplish anything and they're just doing something, right? Uh, but God's anger was kindled because he went and the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as his adversary. Of course, we've talked before, this word here is Satan. God is uh, sending some sort of angel or himself and standing in his way as his Satan. Same word for Satan. Uh, Satan just means adversary, someone to oppose. Uh, we have 
the adversary showing up in God's judgment of Israel, where Yahweh judges Israel, the Satan judges Israel. Same word being used interchangeably with the name of Yahweh. It doesn't have to be the Satan, the Satan that we think of with the horns or whatever, the fallen angel, anything like that. It's just an adversary. Now he was riding on the donkey, and his two servants were with him. And the donkey saw the Lord standing in the road with the drawn sword in his hand. And the donkey turned out of the road and went into the field. And Balaam struck the donkey to turn her into the road. So we all feel so sorry for this poor donkey. Uh, this is probably not the point of the story is to feel sorry for this abused animal. It's, it's an element. It's something that draws our attention, draws our sympathy for the donkey, because the donkey is trying to save its own life and save Balaam's life. And Balaam just doesn't understand. So there's needless suffering being inflicted. But the angel of the Lord is, is standing there being seen by this donkey. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed against the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall. So he struck her again. Again, angel of the Lord. Angel's kind of a generic term. Sometimes it's used interchangeably with Yahweh. So we're not clear what type of being this is. If this is a lesser being acting in conjunction with Yahweh's will or a Yahweh himself. You know, there's there's times where Yahweh comes down. Yahweh's called an angel. Jacob wrestles with an angel in one text and he wrestles with Yahweh in another. You know, it's uh, we or we're not entirely clear what figure this is if it's a divine messenger acting on behalf of Yahweh or if it's Yahweh himself we get the famous scene then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey and she said to Balaam what have I done to you that you have struck me these three times and Balaam said to the donkey I you know you'd probably be surprised or something but the text doesn't indicate his response to a talking donkey maybe maybe this is Maybe this is commonplace in his life. Uh, he commonly interacts with Yahweh, commonly talks to God. Maybe, maybe he's had these donkey experiences before. We don't know, but it doesn't it doesn't portray his reaction to a talking donkey. Because you have made a fool of me, I wish I had a sword in my hand, for then I would kill you. And the donkey said to Balaam. Am I not your donkey on which you have ridden all your life long to this day? Is it my habit to treat you in this way? And he said, No. Uh, that's really interesting for our own lives, people we interact with. If someone's acting out of character and they want you to do something, you probably should trust that uh, they have your best interest at, in heart, in hand. If, if it's not typical, rather than just questioning them, you might want to say, maybe there's extenuating circumstances and I'm going to go along with it. Like if I yell out to my wife, duck or if i yell out to my kids uh start running um that i you really don't want to just stand there and say well why should i duck or why should i start running you probably just want to just go ahead and start doing it right uh without questioning because of what you know about the character of the person who's giving that sort of command but not everyone does Some, sometimes people like to press back they they act like balaam as if uh known character past performance doesn't inform how you should react to atypical behavior in the present. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam. He saw the angel of the Lord standing his way with his sword drawn in his hand and he bowed down on his face. And the angel of the Lord said to him, why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out to oppose you because your way is perverse before me. The donkey saw me and turned aside before me these three times. 
If she had not turned aside from me, surely just now I would have killed you and let her live. So God's going to kill Balaam over this instance in which Balaam, perhaps he's not listening precisely to God's instructions. Perhaps he's acting on his own initiative. Perhaps he wants that money. I don't, I don't know if he gets to keep the money, if he doesn't get to actually curse Israel. And Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, for I have sinned. I did not know that you stood in the road against me. Now, therefore, if it is evil in your sight, I will turn back. And the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, go with the men, but only speak the word that I tell you. So this situation is positioning a threat against Balaam. Uh, something, I think this needs to happen because uh, Balaam might be a rogue agent. He might go off and do his own thing. And so there needs to be a circumstance which demonstrates God's power, a direct threat against Balaam's life in order to convince Balaam to follow God's commands, right? So in uh, the previous verse, maybe he didn't follow the commands exactly, so now he has to be threatened. God has to threaten people in the Bible in order to do what God wants those people to do, threats. So it's not this divine, meticulous control of all things. God has to threaten people, physically coerce people into doing God's will, God's what, what God wants to happen. And so we need to divorce in our mind any thought that any of these people are anything other than free will agents, able to do other things other than what God commands them to do. Even if they are preaching the word of God, they might turn into rogue agents. God has to corral them with threats. When Balak heard that Balaam had come, he went out to meet them at the city of Moab, on the border formed by the Aron, at the extremity of the border. And Balak said to Balaam, Did I not send to call you? Why did you not come to me? Am I not able to honor you? And Balaam said to Balak, Behold, I have come to you. Have I now any power of my own to speak anything? The word that God puts in my mouth, I must speak. It seems here that he's he's managing expectations, that uh, you know he might... Yeah, when once he does turn against Balak, once he does betray Balak, he's he says, This is what I have to speak per Yahweh. These are the things I have to say. That doesn't necessarily mean every single word that he chooses, he couldn't have chose otherwise, or this precise wording was directly from God. We don't get any sense in numbers that God gives him all the direct exact words to be said other than a general message that Israel is to be blessed rather than cursed. And that's probably what he means uh, by this, that I have I now the power of my own to speak anything. It's God that puts the words in my mouth. He has to give God's message, whatever that message is. Then Balaam went with Balak and they came to Kareth, Who's off? I don't know if I'm saying any of these names correctly. And Balak sacrificed oxen and sheep and sent for Balaam and for the princes who were with them. And in the morning, Balak took Balaam and brought him to Bamoth Baal. And from there, he saw a fraction of the people. So we go to 23. 23 is a pretty famous passage. It's famous in the sense that Calvinists like to use this as proof text for their metaphysics, that God is not a man that he should repent. And so that's Primarily where we're going to see references to Numbers 23 rather than the story, which everyone seems to ignore the story, ignore the details of the story. No one seems to sit there and question what the heck this pagan priest is doing, talking to God in a very casual manner. Uh, it, it seems like it's a commonplace occurrence. 
and that he has effectual power to curse and bless. And God's needed angry response in order to thwart Balaam before he could curse Israel. Balaam seems to have some efficacy behind his curses that God needs to thwart. God is stepping in the way of Balaam. God is subverting Balaam, threatening Balaam in order to convert Balaam's curses to blessings for Israel. His blessings are going to be effectual towards Israel as well. I'm going to skip forward a little bit. Numbers 23.3, And Balaam said to Balak, Stand beside your burnt offering, and I will go. Perhaps the Lord will come to meet me, and whatever he shows me, I will tell you. And he went to a bear height, and God met Balaam. God, God's coming to Balaam again. This is pretty commonplace in Balaam's life. There are priests of Yahweh outside of Israel throughout the Semitic world. We should be understanding this and getting this in our head. It seems that it seems that even within Moses' direct family, there might be ideas of Yahweh and worship of Yahweh. They have the knowledge of circumstance or circumcision. Uh, Moses' wife knows what to do with circumcision. It seems to be a common practice among Yahweh worshipers. Melchizedek is another good example in Genesis. He's the priest of the high God. He's he's a priest of Yahweh that doesn't exist within Israel. So uh, we really need to divorce in our mind the linkages between Yahweh and Israel. Yes, Israel is a chosen special people. They're given special privileges. They're converted into a priest nation. But that doesn't mean Yahweh worship is confined to Israel. There are people throughout the ancient world who worship Yahweh and worshiped Yahweh for longer than Israel did, uh, by proper name. Uh, remember, Israel was worshiping Yahweh as El Shaddai from as long as they could remember. But the ancient world has familiarity with Yahweh. So God meets Balaam, and Balaam said to him, I have arranged the seven altars and offered on each an altar of a bull and a ram. And the Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth and said, Return to Balak, and thus you shall speak. And he returned to him, and behold, he and all the princes of Moab were standing besides the burnt offering. So God gives him the words to say. It doesn't tell us which words he was given, uh, but we could assume that whatever the next thing that he says whatever blessing or curse that he gives, those are the words from God. And Balaam took up his discourse and said, From Aram Balak has brought me, the king of Moab from the eastern mountains. Come curse Jacob for me and come denounce Israel. How can I curse whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce whom the Lord Yahweh has not denounced? For from the top of the crags I see him, from the hills I behold him. Behold, a people dwelling alone and not counting itself among the nations. Who could count the dust of Jacob or number the fourth part of Israel? Let me die the death of the upright and let my end be like this. And Balak said to Balaam, What have you done to me? I took you to curse my enemies and behold, you have done nothing but bless them. And Balak said to him, Please come with me to another place from which you may see them. You shall see only a fraction of them and shall not see them all. Then curse them for me from there. So I think this this is actually, they're actually really funny. So Balak's idea is, oh, we'll just show you a little part of them and then you should curse them all from there. And since you're not seeing the whole multitude of them, you're not going to be as scared and you're going to be more willing to curse. It's like what the, the cursing and blessing thing, that seems to be over already, right? And he took him to the field of Zophram, to the top of Pishka, and built seven altars and offered a bull and ram on each altar. 
And Balaam said to Balak, Stand here beside your burnt offering while I meet the Lord over there. And the Lord met Balaam and put a word in his mouth. In meeting with God again, it's a normal occurrence for him. He is a priest of Yahweh, at least in part. He might be solely dedicated to Yahweh. Uh, he might have a, a pantheon that he reports to other divine agents. But he seems to have regular common communication with Yahweh. And he came to him, and behold, he was standing besides his burnt offering, and the princes of Moab with him. And Balak said to him, What has the Lord spoken? And Balaam took up his discord and said, Rise, Balak, and hear. Give ear to me, O son of Zippor. God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Behold, I received a command to bless, and he is blessed, and I cannot revoke it. He has not beheld misfortunes in Jacob, nor has he seen trouble in Israel. The Lord God is with them, and the shout of the king is among them. God brings them out of Egypt, and is for them like the horns of the wild ox. There is no enchantment against Jacob, no divination against Israel. Now it shall be said of Jacob and Israel, what has God wrought? What hath God wrought? This is, of course, if you remember any of your history classes, is the first uh, message ever sent by Morse, Morse code. What has God wrought? Behold a people, as a lioness, it rises up as the lion, it lifts itself up, it does not lie down until it has devoured the prey and drunk the blood of the slain. Very violent imagery about Israel. Israel's a warlike people. Remember in a previous podcast, we talked about them possibly being ancient mercenaries. They're very uncivilized, very violent. It's a warlike culture. It's a warlike tribe. Yahweh is a warlike God. There's a book of the wars of Yahweh. An ancient book that is mentioned several times throughout the Bible where that just documents the wars of Yahweh. Yahweh is a warlike God for a warlike tribe and blesses Israel, a warlike people, with warlike blessings. Behold, a people, as a lioness, it rises up, and as the lion itself lifts it, it does not lie down until it has devoured the prey and drunk the blood of the slain. So it seems that God has communicated to Balaam to bless Israel. He's blessed Israel several times. There's the statement in here, in what we read, where uh, he explains himself to Balak. His explanation why God is continually cursing and not blessing Israel is that God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should change his mind. And so Balaam is trying to be, he's being courted by Balak. Balak wants Balaam to change his mind. He's offering him money. He's bringing him to different locations to try to curse partially Israel. Uh, so he's he's trying all these different strategies and that might work uh, on Balaam if Balaam was not being threatened by God, right? Or not being acting as an agent of God. You're not going to change God's mind with money or cash. You're not going to change his mind by showing him a partial group of people to alleviate fears. That God is going to be consistent in his goals and plans. And since he's already chosen to bless Israel, all these little attempts to go somewhere else and, and try something else, they're not going to work. What this doesn't mean is that God in no way ever repents about anything, never feels sorryful about anything, never changes his mind about anything. You know, the, the immediate point being communicated is God is going to be true to Israel. God's going to stick with Israel, and he's not going to be swayed by these, these little uh, 
trinkets, these, these gifts, these uh, strategies to change minds. God is consistent to Israel. God is the God of Israel, and God will protect them. He will lead them. He will guide them through battle. He will determine to keep blessing them as opposed to curses. He will thwart curses against them. Yahweh is the God of Israel. That's the media point being communicated here. And people want to make this about metaphysics. That uh, Balaam and Balak, the, that there's there's this conversation and uh, Balak's like, what the heck are you doing here? And Balaam's like, well, let's pause here and talk about metaphysics. Have you ever heard about immutability and timelessness and uh, God's uh, impassibility? Nothing can affect God and God is outside of time and space, which means there's, there's no change within his being. Um, there's no parts within God that could change and, and create different circumstances to other parts that create variation. And God, he, you know, that metaphysically, he's unable to express any emotions such as repentance, surprise, uh, frustration. None of those things apply to God. And then Balak's sitting here like, what the heck? What, this, this, what relevance does this have to what we're doing here. No, instead, the immediate point is, you know, God's a person. God can do things, but God's dedicated to a particular people group. There's no hint, no hint in the context that this has anything to do with metaphysical claims, but it turns into a proof text because the Bible is completely devoid of proof text for metaphysics that you you just have to grab these small phrases and pretend they're about metaphysics. There's nothing in the context here that suggests it. Instead, the immediate point is God's dedication to a people group, who he's chosen, and his inability to be swayed otherwise. Balaam is trying is being courted again by Balak. Balak's trying to get Balaam to change his mind. It is not going to work because God's going to remain true to purpose. And Balak, he tries to mitigate the damages here. He just uh, brought a prophet up to curse Israel, and there's blessings instead. And Balak said to Balaam, do not curse them at all, but do not bless them at all either. It's like, if, if you're going to do, you're, you're making matters worse, Balaam. And so how about we just don't do anything, and uh, we'll call it good. But Balaam answered Balak, did I not tell you that all the Lord says I must do? And the Lord said to bless, so he must bless. And Balak said to Balaam, come now, I will take you to another place. Perhaps it will please God and you may curse for me from there. And so Balak still tried. He's trying to convince God to curse Israel by bringing him somewhere else. I, I, I don't understand. Maybe it's a location-based thing. Maybe he thinks that God's power waxes or wanes or, or is convinced to do things based on the land they're standing on. That's a very ancient concept where gods are tied to physical places. I don't know if that's going on here, but it is it is kind of silly in spite of everything that's going on here. So Balak took Balaam to the top of Pera, which overlooks the desert, and Balaam said to Balak, build for me here seven altars and prepare for me seven bulls and seven rams. And Balak did as Balaam said, but offered a bull and ram on each altar. When Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he did not go as at other times to look for omens, but set his face towards the wilderness. And Balaam lifted his eyes and saw Israel camping tribe by tribe, and the Spirit of God came upon him. So now there's a Spirit of God coming upon him. So what does this mean? Is he going into an aesthetic trance? Is he 
you know, sometimes we, we got uh, those prophets such as Ezekiel who, who go into almost trance-like states to give oracles and prophecies where almost it does seem that God is controlling him. Those previous statements was not God controlling him. There, there's no trance state going on there. He's just saying what he's com been communicating with God about. Whereas in this case, now he looks to be overtaken. And he took up his discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of man whose eyes is open, and the oracle of him who hears the words of God, who sees the vision of the Almighty, falling down with his eyes uncovered. How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your encampments, O Israel. This is, this is a incredibly funny scene. Uh, Balak's probably going out of his mind. He's, he brought this prophet up, and all these bad things are then happening. While there's this massive enemy that's at your front gates. Uh, you're dealing with this prophet who's just doing all sorts of unpredictable and crazy things. And uh, blessing, blessing him, blessing your enemies at their gates. This is interesting. Uh, if I was Balak, maybe I would, I don't know, kill Balaam. But uh, Balak doesn't do that. And Balak's anger was kindled against Balaam and he struck his hands together. And Balak said to Balaam, I called you to curse my enemies, and behold, you have blessed them these three times. Therefore now flee to your own place. I said, I will certainly honor you, but the Lord has held you back from honor. So he's using Yahweh's name. Balak seems familiar with Yahweh as well. And Balaam said to Balak, he said, I warned you this would happen. You called me anyways. Did I not tell your messengers whom you sent that if Balak should give me his house full of silver and gold, I would not be able to go beyond the word of Yahweh? To do either good or bad of my own will, what Yahweh speaks, that I will speak. And now, behold, I am going to my people. Come, I will let you know what this people will do to your people in latter days. So Balaam has a final oracle. He seems to be still in his ecstatic trance. And he took up his discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Bor, the oracle of the man whose eyes are open, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty, falling down with his eyes uncovered. I see him, but now I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab, and break down all the sons of Seth. Edom shall be dispossessed, Shear also his enemies shall be disposed. Israel is doing valiantly, and the one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of the cities. Then he looked on Amalek, and took up his discourse, and said, Amalek was first among the nations, but its end is utter destruction. And he looked on Kenite, and took up his discourse, and said, Enduring is your dwelling place, and your nest is set in a rock. Nevertheless, Cain shall be burned when Asher takes away captive. But ships shall come from Kittim, and shall affect Asher and Eber, and he too shall come to utter destruction. Then Balaam rose and went to his place, and Balak also went his way. This seems to be the main text of our knowledge of Balaam. Balaam also arises in reference to the incident of Peor. Peor, his name doesn't actually occur in the instance in which it happens, but later on it's referenced that he caused this problem. It says this, While Israel lived in Sittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of Yahweh was kindled against Israel. And Yahweh said to Moses, Take all our chiefs and the people and hang them in the sun before Yahweh, that the fierce anger of Yahweh may turn away from Israel. 
And Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Pure. It seems like Balaam, although he communicates with Yahweh, he has regular conversations with Yahweh, that he had advised uh, individuals in Israel to engage in this heresy in which they're yoking themselves to a foreign deity, the Baal of Pure. And uh, later on, let, let's let's find that real quick. We come to Numbers 31.7. They warred against Midian as the Lord commanded Moses and killed every male. They killed the kings of Midian with the rest of their slain. Evi, Rechem, Zer, Hur, and Reba, the five kings of Midian. I don't know why they're killing Reba McIntyre. They also killed Balaam, the son of Bor, with a sword. We're scrolling down. This is Moses talking. Behold, these, on Balaam's advice, caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Pure, and so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. So uh, Balaam somehow is involved in creating a worship of a deity who's not Yahweh in the Baal instance, where the Baal of Pure is being worshipped. So Balaam's name, although it's not in that instance, it's not referenced in that instance, this is the reason he's ultimately punished. He again is referenced in the New Testament. But before turning to the New Testament, we'll turn to this one interesting reference in Joshua, where this is Joshua recounting what has happened, and this is Yahweh speaking. So Joshua is saying, this is what the Lord says. And it says, Then Balak, the son of Zippor, the king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel. So this is recounting those events. And he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. So Balaam seems to actually have argued in favor of cursing Israel in exchange for money, prominence, anything that Balak was offering. Uh, but God would not be swayed. So this is this is a further evidence that, you know, God is not a man that he's going to lie or repent. Uh, he's not going to be persuaded to do other than to bless Israel. He's not going to be changed, has to have his mind changed by these, these for these petty reasons. It's for just very interesting. Balaam wanted to curse Israel, but God would not listen to him. Indeed, he blessed you, so I delivered you out of his hand. And in his hands, of course, Balak's hand. It seems that God forced Balaam to bless Israel such that then he could listen to Balaam's blessing to bless Israel. It's, it's kind of an odd structure here. So that, that might be what's going on here. There's a reference in 2 Peter 2.15. Remember, we've covered the primary text. So this is looking back and evaluating what has gone on. 2 Peter 2.15, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. For they have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. So it seems like Balaam really did want to curse Israel, wanted to make money from this instance. This this is uh, the wrong way to do things. And this is in reference to Balaam's interaction with Yahweh in Numbers 23. So it's not about his later life on, in getting people to turn towards the, the Baal of Pure. It's not about that. It's about the donkey interaction where Balaam, it seems to be, in Peter's estimation, was pressing against God's will. He didn't want to do what God wanted. He wanted to actually curse Israel in this text. Although I don't seem to have read it myself, but we, we could... We could look into his motivations. Peter seems to do that. Uh, Joshua seems to do that. Or the, the, the mo those motivations just aren't 
aren't recorded. Maybe Peter's looking back on Joshua's evaluation and using that as his evidence. There's a reference in Jude to Balaam. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's heir and perished in Korah's rebellion. So it's just saying an heir like Balaam, that Balaam's trying to get people to worship other gods. That seems to be what's going on here. Uh, it might just be a general reference rather than Balaam's actually leading that particular perishing. Revelation 2.14 is our last reference to Balaam in the New Testament. And it's actually quite interesting because it's recounting things that I don't remember happening in the Bible. And it's uh, structuring itself as Jesus speaking. You got the red letters in, uh, in the ESV or your normal Bible. And it says this, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So is this about the incident of uh, Baal at Peor? Maybe, could be. It, it seems to be that Balaam had some sort of conversation with Balak at one point saying, if you want to hold these guys up, if you want to kind of now throw a wrench in the system. How about how about sex and food, right? Those are pretty convincing arguments, I'd have to say, to an army of Israelites. Sex and food might, maybe, might be motivators to men to forsake God. Sex and food. So let's summarize, <laughs> summarize Balaam. Balaam is a mysterious figure. Uh, he seems to be maybe a Yahweh worshiper. He's a priest with some sort of connection to Yahweh, regular communication with Yahweh. He seems to have curses and blessings with effectual power. He seems to be able to tap into the divine realm. He seems to have conflicting priorities. He, he, Although he has these powers, he has these connections to the divine realm. He also likes money. Uh, he also likes uh, position. He also likes wealth. And he's not completely 100% faithful to Yahweh in any of the texts. The recounting of even his interaction with Yahweh in Numbers uh, shows him as resistant, hesitant to do Yahweh's will, always pressing against what Yahweh wants, and only being a reluctant prophet after being physically threatened, coerced, coerced into doing the right things. He's eventually killed. His killing is drawn the parallel to the connection to Israel rebelling and worshiping other gods. So Balaam seems to be connected into uh, trying to gain wealth from getting Israel to worship other gods who are not Yahweh. So in, in reality, Balaam, although he has connections to Yahweh and has prophesied on behalf of Yahweh, he is a false prophet at times. He is He's not a good character. He's someone who is reluctantly pressed into services. Not a hero in a sense. He, he's, a, he's a mixed bag. There's good things he does do, but there's also a lot of bad things he does do. He's portrayed as a villain throughout the Bible. Probably not a reliable character witness. Anything he does says if he's doing it reluctantly and uh, against Yahweh. Maybe probably the most, the most trustworthy prophecies he has is when he's in maybe his ecstatic 
fit where, where he's prophesying based on uh, maybe a possession by the Holy Spirit. Something like that happens within the story as we read, but otherwise he seems to be a free agent. So his his word, his authority is questionable. Again, there's nowhere where he speaks metaphysics as people try to use him. They use him for their metaphysical concepts of God. I don't think there was a conversation where Balaam sat down with God who's immutable and impassable and timeless and then God explained to Balaam that he's immutable and impassable and timeless and it doesn't have parts or division. I don't think that ever happened. I don't think that concept was in Balaam's mind in any of these texts. I think that Balaam was more talking about Yahweh's character. They, they don't seem to be Platonists anywhere in the Bible, especially Balaam doesn't seem to be. He, he's resisting He's resisting Yahweh. He's advocating for other gods instead of Yahweh. He doesn't believe these metaphysics that are so often attributed to him, unbeknownstly. The people who quote Balaam, they don't know that they're quoting Balaam, as as we found with our CJ friend in a, a previous uh, clip that I posted from a from one of my discussions. They don't know they're quoting Balaam, but ba Balaam's not a Platonist. Uh, he doesn't believe that God has these properties such as not being able to ever change your mind about anything. That's not what's going on in the text. He is a character witness of Yahweh. He's giving his evaluation of God's character. God's character is one of consistency towards Israel. Again, Balaam, I find it most interesting that this is a prophet who doesn't have contact with Israel, who knows who Yahweh is with regular commune with Yahweh, seems to act in some roles as a priest of Yahweh. There's sacrifices to Yahweh, and those sacrifices bring real results. He seems to have links to the divine realm. He's a powerful figure. He's an important figure within the Bible. He's just not a trustworthy, reliable character. He, he's a mixed bag and a villain within the story of the Bible. Anyways, there's things we probably could have covered. I think there's uh, accounts of Balaam in both Josephus and in Philo of Alexandria, but uh, we're just covering the biblical material today. So if you like, comment, question, start a thread on God is Open uh, Facebook group. Thanks for listening.